Well, welcome back to campus, Dort College. We are glad that everybody is back safe and sound. I hope you had a restful, um, enjoyable break. I spent most of mine trying to grow hair. It's coming. Last year, I heard Dr. Ethan Brew give a talk on reverse engineering, finding something that works and taking it all apart in order to understand how it gets to the end result, how it becomes this final product. It got me thinking, how do you reverse engineer a disciple on fire? There are people that you've seen and experienced in different places in your life on the other side thinking, I would like to emulate some aspect of that person. I want to know what it is that they did when they were in college. What decisions did they make? What questions did they ask that got them to the place where they are not only a voice surviving in the, in the world, but one that is relevant and important and engaged and on fire and honoring Christ. So 300 people have now, through surveys that we've sent out, help write the curriculum for what will be chapel this semester. What are the questions that older people wish you were asking right now in college? And what are the questions that you're asking that you don't think are being answered in your classroom so far? So we're going to talk about some hard topics. And the goal at the end of all of this is to prepare you for what whatever 501 class would look like on the other side of Dort. Whether that's taking place in grad school, in the workforce, or wherever it is that God's going to call you to. And we're going to try to address some of those questions together. So that will be the, the, what we're going to talk about the semester ahead in chapel. I started off this morning reading, beginning a new book, John Ortberg's The Me I Want to Be. And um, I'm hoping that's a title that will sort of resonate with you, thinking about what it is that I want to be, and how do we get there? How do we pull from the wisdom of those who've gone before, and how do we ask the right questions? The church for a long time has called this the process of sanctification. We'll explore this more fully together. And to kick us off today and start the semester off in terms of understanding our engagement with the importance of the place of the church in our lives, Dr. President Hookstrow, will you please welcome him forward? Well, indeed, welcome back. Um, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. Would you please bow your heads with me as we get started? Lord, as we push the cobwebs away and uh, wake back up to this semester, um, we acknowledge you as our God. We're thankful for this place, Lord, and what you're going to accomplish through us this semester. So this morning in chapel and indeed for the whole semester, Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Father. In the risen name of Christ we pray. Amen. Now the star-bellied sneeches had bellies with stars, and the plain-bellied sneeches had none upon thars. Those stars weren't so big, they were really so small. You might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. But because they had stars, all the star-bellied sneeches would brag, we're the best kind of sneeches on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort, We'll have nothing to do with the plain-bellied sort. And whenever they met some, when they were out walking, they'd hike right on past them without even talking. And because I didn't prepare anything more, we're going to keep reading Dr. No. <laughs> we use the term around here a lot, distinctive. 
And sometimes they say the preacher is preaching to him or herself. And I suppose I'm among the largest user of the word distinctive in terms of what we're trying to do here. And if you've never done it, I'd encourage you this semester sometime, maybe on a little warmer day than today, that little brick pillar that sits by the clock tower. On three faces of that, there are plaques. On the one, name of some donors who provided the resources to beautify campus. On the other, the college's seal, which has the three words, Soli Deo Gloria, which in all likelihood we'll end with today. But on the west face of that is a little plaque called the Founder's Vision. And if you've never read it yourself, you've maybe seen it in a presentation somewhere, but if you've never read it, I'd encourage you to pause there. Because those are the words that founded this place. And they say something like, Dort College should be a distinct Christian college, different than other Christian colleges. And so it shouldn't surprise us that word distinct rings regularly around here. And I want to be clear this morning that I think we should continue to be distinctive, distinct. Keep searching for what makes us more obedient all the time in terms of what God has called us to be as a college that takes Scripture seriously in everything we do. However, I want to take a few minutes this morning to go to the other end of that spectrum and look at when we are so distinctive, where might we be not as good as God would have us be? Or when does distinctiveness perhaps become a sin? Because I think it can be. And I want to just spend a few minutes, but be clear at the beginning. I am not talking about Dort winnowing its down its distinctiveness in any way. But I simply believe sometimes in the way I carry it on your behalf and sometimes how we've carried it in the past and how the church has carried that distinctiveness in the world might need some modification if we're to um, witness to the cause of Christ effectively. So that's what we want to spend a few minutes on this morning by way of some stories, by way of some creeds and some words from some people. As we get started, would you recite this with me? This is the Apostles' Creed. It is one of the essential things that Christians in all times and in all places regularly recite to express their unity. So please express it with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Thank you. We're going to focus on those three little words, Holy Catholic Church, this morning, just a bit. Those songs that the, the worship team picked out resonate with that. The title of my message, Why I Don't Go to Church Anymore, maybe made some of you perk up. I heard it already from one of you this morning. Um, and you noticed that the word to was in parentheses. 
I just want us to reframe, rethink that word church. We use it so blithely. We use it in so many different ways and contexts that I wonder if we might understand that internally, but I wonder if sometimes it expresses something different to those who maybe aren't as familiar with our usage of the term. And so I want to challenge it a bit. And I challenge it from the standpoint of somebody that grew up in the church. And in fact, I've never belonged to any other church except the Christian Reformed Church. So perhaps I'm not the best to speak on this. But I've thought a lot about it. My father was a preacher. He went to seminary. He never took a church. But he would preach around, and I would oftentimes go with him, and I enjoyed it a lot. And in fact, the unique thing was you'd often hear the Apostles' Creed spoken in all these different churches. And as a young person, it made me realize my little congregation isn't the all, end-all and be-all, the only church that does things this way. But I grew up in an Irish Catholic neighborhood. And if I didn't cheer for Notre Dame, I got beat up. So up until six years, seven years ago, Notre Dame was my favorite college football team. I'll allow you to guess which one's my favorite college football team now. But one week, my parents were out of town and I stayed over at the home of one of my friends who was Irish Catholic. And I went to church with him at St. Al's Roman Catholic Parish in Palos Heights, Illinois. And for a young Reformed kid, that experience certainly told me, and then the next week when I went and recited the Apostles' Creed at church, that I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, there were many differences, many unique things. There was smoke, there was Latin, there were these little wafers that they told me that better, better never hit the ground. I was, my eyes were wide open. And then I realized I'm saying that I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. It created this, what's going on in my life. And then I went to college and I was a history and philosophy major intending to be a seminarian. And after this speech, you'll realize why it's probably good I never became a pastor. But I began to study the history and philosophy, particularly of the Christian church. And I became an expert in understanding this chart. Excuse me, you were supposed to see my favorite football team. Here we go. If you've never been there for a Saturday to be under the Golden Dome and... Um, see the statue of Jesus with his arms raised as a referee in a touchdown form, um, you really should. It's quite something. We're working on fundraising for a uh, mural over at the Aussies. But I spent a lot of time in college thinking about this kind of a thing. How it is that the Reformed tradition is different, distinct. I loved it. I enjoyed spending time thinking about doctrine and all of the ways in which Reformed people were called to be obedient and different. And if you look at this, you notice a number of things. One is, there's a little section up there on the upper left that says the undivided church. And we'll talk about that a little bit in just a minute. The saddest part about this diagram to me is the bottom left, where it says, due to space limitations, this chart only shows a few of the major groups and offshoots. You notice the Calvinists and the Reformed and the Presbyterians are sort of in that zone. Well, if we didn't have space limitations, what would we do? This is just the Presbyterian, that little strand of the Presbyterians. And all the offshoots and groups, and some of you will see your churches represented there in terms of that. 
That's who we've become as a church. And I understand why that is in some ways. But I wonder, from God's perspective, what he sees. You'll laugh at this, perhaps snicker, or perhaps you'll be embarrassed. This is the membership class at a new church. The instructor says, so this is where our movement came along and got the Bible right. And the person in the membership class says, Jesus is so lucky to have us. It makes us snicker, and I understand that. But there's truth in it that I think tears at God's heart sometimes in terms of how distinctive we've become. And I just want to challenge us a little bit to look at perhaps what Christ said. When he was leaving, first, he prayed that God would be glorified. Next, he prayed for his disciples. And then later in John, he prayed this. My prayer is not for them alone, that is my disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, and that is all of us. Christ prayed for all of us before he went to the cross. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. He says it three times as if God didn't understand it as he was praying it the first time. Or maybe those three times are for us, so that we know that he really means it. And if all of that happens, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And my reflection, after spending a good bit of my career worrying about the distinctiveness, is that perhaps we've pushed it too far. And if you look twice there, Christ says, if we are one, then we'll be able to be a good witness to the world. But if we're all separated out in this kind of Presbyterian and that kind of Roman Catholic and this kind of that, perhaps that's not why, that is why we're not being more effective in terms of being a witness to the world who doesn't give a hoot about what the differences are between the two of them. They just need to know Jesus. All of this in the context of this is so that we can see ourselves a different way. Again, hear me that I am not suggesting that we become a bland Christian college unlike the founder's vision, but rather that we check ourselves from time to time and consider it. Because as I went out then from college and I didn't go to seminary, I went out into the business world and I had a couple of experiences. One, the first Bible study I was ever asked to be in as a business person was by someone from the Pentecostal tradition. And given my history and understanding of those family flowcharts, that sort of made sense, right? That who would want to talk about, of course, we as Reformed people really know how to integrate our faith into business. We don't have to talk about it directly. So it, wouldn't, it was maybe no surprise that the Pentecostal guy was inviting the Reformed guy to a Bible study in the context of business. But as we studied, the business curriculum that they brought in terms of a Bible study wasn't this flighty world flight mentality. It was a dig in, get it done kind of thing. And I thought, that's not what Pentecostals are supposed to say. All of a sudden, I, my eyes opened up and I realized that perhaps Reformed people didn't have a corner on how to integrate biblical truths into business. My second one was in Sioux Falls. It was during Lent. 
And my tradition, of course, because I grew up in the Irish Catholic neighborhood and they were always eating fish on Fridays and that didn't make sense to us, we didn't commemorate or celebrate or even work during Lent towards anything different than the rest of the world because we were Reformed people, right? We don't have to do those rituals. So I had never known a bit about Lent and I got invited to a Lenten luncheon series at the Cathedral of St. Joseph's in Sioux Falls with a friend of mine who is a serious, serious Roman Catholic. And again, I expected that the kinds of things that I would hear, I was going because he was my business friend. But the kind of things I was hearing resonated with me, with me as a person who was trying to make Christ come alive in culture and in my daily life. So I just give you those examples to say, yes, you are here at this place. But as we define church, we need to think about what the Holy Catholic Church looks like, perhaps differently sometimes, and in unexpected ways. Which always, when I'm confused, I do, still, head back to the Reformed Confessions. Excuse me. So, if we really want to understand what those three little words mean in the Apostles' Creed, we should go to the Heidelberg Catechism. Again, one of our essential truths, people that have thought about this hundreds of years before us and more deeply. And I love this question and answer from the Catechism. It says, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through the, His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. That's larger than just that reformed piece of the family tree. That gathering, protecting, a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. That concept of truth sometimes gets in the way because we want to speak the truth to people. We want to tell them how it really is or how at least we see it. And one of our board members, Dr. Richard Mao, has written a great little book. If you've never read it, I encourage you to read it. It's called Uncommon Decency. It's in a few of our courses. I actually had to steal my wife's copy because she teaches educational diversity and uses this book. He talks about how do we be Christians and represent the truth but do so in what he calls civil ways. And he says this, we were created for kind and gentle living. Indeed, kindness and gentleness are two of the fruit of the spirit characteristics that the Apostle Paul mentions in Galatians 5. When Christians fail to measure up to the standards of kindness and gentleness, that is to say, when we make our distinctiveness at any price and we carry it out in a warrior-like fashion, we are not the people God meant us to be. And I've read a lot of people that would tell us to be kinder Christians, and they would tell us to water down the truth, to get along and be politically correct. That is not what Dr. Mao calls us to. He says this, not civility alone. Not that civility is the be-all and end-all of life. We will not solve all our problems by simply becoming more civil people. There are times when it is appropriate to manifest some very uncivil feelings. Passionate intensity is not always out of place. If I am going to be a more civil person, it cannot be because I have learned to ignore my convictions. 
A journalist hit the mark in a review essay dealing with urban problems. He said that Americans are facing a crisis in our cities because we have let our standards of civility and truth waste dangerously away. I'm glad he included something about the lack of concern for the truth. Again, united in true faith. It is not enough merely to reclaim civility. We need to cultivate a civility that does not play fast and loose with the truth. And that's the tension we live in as Christians. We know the truth. We want to proclaim it. But when we proclaim it in ways that divide us, our witness is watered down. And so we have to find out how to do it in spirit and in truth with civility. And he says, one of the real problems in modern life is that the people who are good at being civil sometimes lack strong convictions. And the people who have strong convictions often lack civility. I like that way of stating the issue. We need to find a way of combining a civil outlook with a passionate intensity about our convictions. So the real challenge is to come up with a convicted civility. And he goes on in a number of chapters on how to work that out in stories as he has led in a very evangelical world um, on how to do that. It's an excellent book. So, church then. How do we be church? Why do we go to church? How will we do this? Because the answer is simply not to throw the church away. John Calvin is very helpful here. If you read Calvin's Institutes, about 25% of it is on the Holy Catholic Church. Wouldn't recommend reading it page by page this afternoon for your devotions. But Calvin thought a lot about this. And again, if we are to be a hospitably reformed college, we need to understand those reformers that dug into these things and read them again and go live it out even more obediently. Calvin distinguishes between a visible and an invisible church. And I think that's what I meant when I gave Aaron the title of this speech, why I don't go to church anymore. Because if we think about the visible church as the only church we understand, we shouldn't put that as the primary. Our primary membership is in that invisible church, in that holy Catholic church, in that gathering and protecting of people throughout all times and all ages, united in true faith and called to do God's work in this world. And so I just want to go through a few thoughts about the difference on the visible and the invisible church with you as we start the semester, and then call you to participate more faithfully and more distinctively as light bearers and salt shakers in this world for this cause. So some thoughts. Again, the church is most, when we use the word church, and again, I'm no Greek, I took Greek in college, but as I say, I never went to seminary. But the word church is ecclesia, the called out ones, the distinctive ones. And in that sense, we're to be distinctive when we're called out as the invisible church, that is the followers of Jesus Christ in all times and all places. We shouldn't confuse that with being church or the called out ones or the distinctive ones in terms of the fourth street X and such church. Then that's the visible church. It also has a place, but that's not the distinctive place. That primary membership in the invisible church is key for us, I think, as Reformed Christians. So church is the visible church. Whether a congregation or a denomination, we can look at it either way. We need to recognize that it, that part is a human institution, as Calvin says, a human institution given by God to us to build our faith. 
But that is a human institution, and it will always be tainted by sin, and it will be less than what God expects of us, which makes us sometimes just want to back away and not participate in that church if it's going to be sinful. And I hear that from you. I hear that from people of your age. I felt that myself when I was in college. If that's the church, I don't want to be a part of it. But what are we left with if we back away from it? Almost nothing. So we have to participate, and that's why we want to train you well to participate meaningfully in it. But don't back away. Don't say, I can't stand any more creeds and confessions. Those creeds and confessions have a place. The visible church is important. We can't just operate individually. So the church, nonetheless, even if it's sinful, is an important and vital institution both for you individually as well as for all of us as we seek to live out the cultural mandate and the Great Commission simultaneously. You can't do it alone. Don't back away. My encouragement to you, when you leave here, join a church. Yes, it will be broken. Yes, it will be fallen. But join a church. You will be so much more blessed individually and effective collectively if you join a local congregation. But just don't confuse the visible with the invisible church. Church, as in the local congregation, is not primarily a taste experience or a social club or something to be selected as we would entertainment. I think we sometimes forget that, that because our primary membership is in the invisible church, yes, the visible church may not be every Sunday that we go exactly as we'd like it, but our job is to be involved and make it better then, participate but realizing that individual tastes may vary, and that's okay. That's part of what God is okay with, as long as we don't confuse the two. And then last, getting hung up on the brokenness of the visible church is not a compelling reason to back out and not participate. Late in first semester, and and this is going to sound very close to distinctively proud on my part, but we got some alumni feedback that 96% of our graduates are participating in their local church five years out of graduation. And I'm, thanks be to God for that, I guess. And I want that to continue because I believe although it's broken, you need to be there. We need you in the church to continue to make it more obedient and faithful and live out Dr. Mao's convicted civility better than the generation that came before me and better than than I'm doing. You can do it better because of who you are, and that you're learning it in a different way. During one of the songs, it said, mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her wars. I like the first one, mid toil and tribulation. We are in a period of tumult and tribulation. You know, perhaps, that Dort has brought a lawsuit against the federal government about religious freedom. Our best partners on that are Roman Catholic institutions, the same people that worship very differently and think very differently. And actually, most of John Calvin's institutes are talking about the abominable abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. But 450 years later, they're our best partners in terms of religious freedom. We need to know those people. We need to understand what makes us different. But when we talk with them, Richard Mao says this, He says, when you talk with somebody from a different faith tradition, do you start with the best case for their tradition or the worst case for their tradition? 
So if I meet somebody who's Roman Catholic, do I immediately start talking to them about what they think of of Mary? Or do I congratulate them for being the largest denomination and having the most believers in the world? What is it that we focus on as we meet people from different traditions? Do we go for their Achilles heel? Or do we acknowledge and look for ways that we're together with them? I think that's a different way of approaching civility in, in a world, whether it be with Christians of different traditions or even folks from different, completely different religious um, traditions. So some thoughts for you on that. The primary membership is in the, in the invisible church, which must supersede our nationality, our race, our geography, and even our identification with a congregation or a denomination. That's hard for us as Americans, if you will, or even North Americans, to think our primary membership is in the Church of Jesus Christ, the Holy Catholic Church, before we're Americans or Canadians or white, black, anything else. And we've got to focus in on that and figure out how to live that out so that the world may know. We state this in everything at Dort, that our religious orientation has to infuse everything we do. And I'll just tell you that in college, when I got that, I sort of said, well, then Sunday worship is sort of immaterial. It doesn't matter. I'm worshiping all day long, right? Which is sometimes what I hear from students when they want to go to church and hear Pastor Sheetsma at Bedside Baptist. That doesn't cut it, right? That is not what we're talking about when we talk about doing everything 24-7, every square inch. The church still matters. Corporate worship still matters. So just to be clear, that's out. I did not say that Reverend Sheetsma at Bedside Baptist is a good church to go to. Make sure that that gets in the video for the Board of Trustees. The visible church is one sphere and only one sphere that God has instituted for our sanctification, for his glory and for the building up of his kingdom. However, it's one sphere and it has to acknowledge the limitations of its sphere. I sometimes see churches wanting to do too much, wanting to get involved too far in politics or in economics. That's when the visible church tries to do that, it's gone outside of its sphere. The church that has to do those things is the invisible church. That's all of you. That's why we have majors in nursing and economics and the arts. That's you going out on behalf of the invisible church shaping culture. But the visible church, that needs to stay within its sphere. Lastly, so Eric, if all that's true, then it doesn't matter what denomination, which church I go to. No. There are marks of the true church, and if you read the Reformed Confessions, there are marks of the true church, and there are three. One is the obedient preaching of the word. Two is the faithful administration of the sacraments. And three is church discipline. And in general, I would say, church discipline is the one where we want to sort of squirm out of. Being held accountable by our brothers and sisters to push for sanctification, to push for pious living, that's the one over the last at least 50 years that the visible church, I think, has been a no-show on. And you've got to figure out how to do that in more civil ways than maybe was done 50 years ago when excommunication would happen over small sins. But I want to state that while I'm not going to go to church anymore, I'm going to continue to worship regularly. And I have tremendous hope for the church, both the visible and the invisible church because of you. That your generation will do it better than the one that came before me and better than my generation. But my earnest plea is for you to engage the church. Do not walk away. 
Do not lie in bed. Do not, when you leave here, say, I just need a break from church. Join a church. Look for the true marks of the church. Engage. And be both obedient, visible church members and invisible church members. I've put a variety of our churches up here that are in our local congregation that serve you. And there's a reason at Dort we don't do church on campus, because we want you in the churches locally to start building that habit of participating in the visible church during your four years here. And if you're not in that habit, perhaps that's a New Year's resolution that you could make to yourself and to God to engage with the visible church, sinful though it is, as you seek to be an obedient member of the invisible church. As we end today, this will be our blessing, so please stand. I'm going to read up until it says amen at the end, and then we will together bless one another. This is from Revelation. That great vision of when it's just the invisible church and all the other things will fall away. So I'll read up till amen, and then we'll say that together as a common blessing on our semester. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Have a great week.